Hands together and welcome Greg. One, two, one, two. Great, it's on. Wow, so good to see so many of you this morning, and it is a joy to be back uh, from PE. Let's just call it that. And uh, we have a number of names, Nelson Mandela Bay, Madiba Bay, and we could go on. Um, but it is a great joy to be with you, such a joy to be with Paul and Lee. And, uh, and we miss Kyle and Michelle, who are obviously uh, away at the moment on some important family work and business and wrapping up things there. Um, we've got two children. They've, uh, they've, they've left the home. Uh, our daughter, Eden, is studying at GWC, and she's actually doing an internship with uh, Luke Harper at um, Seapoint Church, Common Ground, uh, sorry, South Penn, Common Ground. And uh, our son is now in New Zealand. He's doing a working gap year over in New Zealand. And so we are empty nesters, believe it or not. It, uh, we're still adjusting and uh, getting used to it. But um, I'm delighted to, to bring you God's word this morning. It is a great joy for me. Our church covenant grace has been going for 13 years. And we've also been sharing venues for the last 13 years. We share with a Dutch Reformed church. They've been incredibly generous to us. And uh, we're on the brink now of purchasing two properties in the city of Port Elizabeth that are next to each other that can be used long-term for us to build our own venue. So if you do think of us, please pray for uh, the next phase of our journey. It's uh, very exciting for us. I'd love to pray, and then we're going to tuck into God's Word. If you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be just spending time in the first two verses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that uh, you would speak to us. We love your voice, Lord. We love your voice that comes clearly through the scriptures, that by your spirit you inspired. And we pray that that same Holy Spirit would speak uh, now to our hearts and that, Lord, we would learn to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so we pray for this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter 1, verse 1 and 2, reading from the ESV, reads as follows. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In these opening two verses, we have three identity markers, three identity markers that will shape Peter's entire letters, both one and two Peter, and the identity markers are really quite simple to note. Firstly, we see that the author is clearly identified, isn't he? Right up front, it says it's Peter uh, who's the author. And so the author is clearly identified, and the audience is also specifically addressed, aren't they? We are addressing a particular audience, and, uh, and Peter is very clear who his audience is. He specifically addresses them. And then thirdly, the argument is plainly presented. The argument is plainly presented. And so we have these three identity markers. But before we talk about these identity markers, I want to just reflect on an identity crisis 
that the Apostle Peter had. And some of you will immediately remember that there was a time in Peter's life just after Jesus was arrested when he had a real identity crisis, when a servant girl recognized Peter, recognized his look, recognized his position in society at that point and said, are you not one of those? Are you not one of the disciples? Are you not one of those followers of this man who's just been arrested? And we pick up, just briefly have a look at this in Mark 14, where she addresses Peter and the crowd in the temple courtyard. And she says this in verse 69, she says, this man is one of them. And then we see Peter's response as Mark records it for us, it says, but again, he denied it. So this isn't just the first denial, this is now the second denial. Again, he denied it, and then we read on in verse 71, where Peter himself confesses, here's the, here's the crisis for Peter, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Wow. The apostle Peter. An identity crisis, a serious statement, a confession of confusion, of, of, of fear, of anxiety. And in this moment, Peter is wrestling with his own identity. He's wrestling with identifying with Jesus. He's wrestling with his own sense of belonging, his own sense of being. Does he actually belong to this followership? Is he an apprentice of Christ or isn't he? And this could be a a traumatic experience for anyone at any point in your life where whether it's a midlife crisis or whether you've just graduated and you don't have work or whatever it might be, we all seemingly and, and at certain points in our lives have these moments where we are confronted with who we are and where do we belong and where do we fit in. And I think as a church, if we think not only individually, but if we just zoom out and we think globally or if we think universally, I want to suggest that I think the church itself is in the midst of an identity crisis. That the church, the evangelical church in the world, in the West at least, is in a serious place of questioning. We think of what's happening in America, how, how church and politics are, are, are grossly intertwined. And you've got this whole woke joke movement invading the church in America, even spilling over into our own worlds. Uh, if we think about the, the, the rise of the prosperity gospel and, and how it's just wreaked havoc in the church in Africa, uh, there is a serious identity crisis that, that the church is being invaded with all of these strange influences and strange ideologies. If we think of uh, the progressives in the church, how uh, people are deconstructing their faith and then putting it back together in a kind of this just suits my own worldview scenario, the church really is facing an identity crisis. And I really think that what we see in this opening text, in these first two verses, is a reaffirmation of our true identity. Who is the church? What is the church? And who are we as individuals in the church? And, and I just want to suggest that a clear sense of identity helps us to actually interact with the world around us. If we are confused with our identity, if we are confused individually, 
corporately, as a church, as a community, what's my place in the church, it really doesn't help us to interact with the world around us. We become an anxious people, we become a confused people, instead of bringing, bringing meaningful contribution to a community, we actually just add to the confusion and the problems. So I think at this particular point, when Peter starts to pen this letter to the church, he's certainly settled his crisis, hasn't he? He's no longer afraid of identifying with Jesus. He's very clear in who he is, in his position, in his standing, and in his role in the church. Peter has settled the issue and he's moved on. Why? Because there's no doubt about who the author is. Let's have a look at the author a little closer. The author is very clearly stated, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter and the apostles were eyewitnesses of the gospel. Peter and the apostles witnessed the life and the ministry of Jesus. Peter had a crisis, but now Peter is clear. Peter is proclaiming that he's not just a servant, but he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. A little bit later on in the letter, letter in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, Peter says this, that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And, and you get a sense in which not only is he a witness of the sufferings of Christ, but he's now willing to participate in the sufferings with Christ. By identifying with Christ, Peter is establishing something very clear up front, that he's not concerned about suffering himself for being a follower of Christ. But then when we think about the apostles and we think about their, their privileged role, and let's think about Peter a little bit more. Peter, the rock, remember? Peter, the, the, the apostle. Peter, part of the foundation of the church. Peter, who, who's going to write scripture. Peter, who's going to stand up in the Jerusalem council. Peter, who's going to be, you know, the preacher of the gospel for, for, the, for the first part of the early church. And we can think, well, who are we, you know? Who are we? What, what's our value? You know, if you think of Peter and his position, sometimes we today as the church can think that those guys that lived 2,000 years ago, you know, we don't quite have the same privileged position that they had. If only we too could have witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Maybe we'd feel a little bit closer to God. Maybe we'd feel like we had a little bit more faith. But that's a false position to, to hold on to. If, if you're thinking, well, now we're so far removed from the sufferings of Christ, we're so far removed from that eyewitness account, maybe we don't have the same quality of faith. Peter addresses this illogical conclusion in his second letter. So have a quick look at 2 Peter 1 verse 1. We have the same kind of identity marker. It says, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, now listen to what he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Ours being plural, the apostles. Peter wants to assure us and all believers throughout history that although we may not be an apostle, although we may not be in the foundation of the church, it really doesn't matter what role you play in the church as long as you have faith faith in Christ, you have the same standing as the Jewish apostles. 
You might think, oh, I need to be a little bit more Jewish in order to feel closer to God. Or I need to be a little bit more like the Apostle Peter. Or I need to be, have a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that. And Peter just wrecks that here. And he says, you know what? We, we Jewish apostles and, and you Gentile Christians, we have the same standing. Look what he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. In other words, what's he trying to communicate? In terms of identity, your identity and your value is not based on your calling or your vocation. Peter's vocation was to be a servant and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us are called to be apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles are foundational gifts. They're unique gifts given to the church. Yes, there is apostolic ministry, and you might be thinking, well, where do I fit? I'm not Peter. I want to say to you this morning, yes, you are not Peter, and that's okay. You are you, and you have a faith. If your faith is in Christ, your faith is on an equal standing with the Jewish apostles. Your identity, your value, your worth is not based on your vocation or your calling or your gifting but your faith in Christ. Your faith in Christ. Listen to what Dick Lucas says, one of, one of my favorite expositors. He says this about the apostles. He says, they may be giants and inspiring examples, but how gracious of God to fling open the doors of his heaven so wide as to include absolutely anyone who has faith. And so the author is very clearly portrayed, but we're also aware of his own identity crisis and how he's resolved that and how he wants to speak to our own potential moments of crisis. Am I worthy? Am I worth it? Do I have it, what it takes to be a true follower? Do I have an, enough faith to contribute to the kingdom? And Peter just says, listen, the Jewish apostles who are foundation gifts in the church you Gentiles have a faith that is on an equal standing with ours. The second thing we see in terms of identity markers is the audience. And he writes in verse 1, he says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's talking about a grouping of churches in northern Turkey. But the phrase he uses here is rather striking. The exiles, he calls them, of the dispersion. Peter is writing to a group of churches that comprise mostly of Gentiles, not Jews. You would expect this language to be used of the Jews, because under the Old Testament, it was used exclusively of Jewish people groups. We use the same word today, the diaspora, the dispersion, the dispersed ones. We talk about how the Jews have been dispersed all over the nations, scattered all over the nations since the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. And here Peter is using this very language, this technical language, this very technical title to address these churches that are Gentile churches in the northern regions of Turkey. He says that you Christians, you Gentile Christians are exiles of the new dispersion. He's taking a 
very Jewish concept, and he's applying it to the Gentile church. And he's making a huge point. And his point is this. You Gentile Christians are part of God's ancient Jewish people. You've been grafted into the ancient story of God. What, what Christ has come to do is, is, is incredible, but it's actually nothing new. It's the unfolding of an original covenant that he made with Abraham. And new Christian, Jewish, uh, Gentile Christians have been woven into the story, this ancient story. Don't question your identity. Your identity is precious to God. You are now the exiles of this continued dispersion. And so he takes these strong Jewish titles and he applies them to the church in northern Turkey that are about to undergo some radical persecution. And to make this abundantly clear, he says not only are you exiles, but he says you are elect exiles. The elect exiles. Which brings us to the main argument. To those who are elect exiles. These two words sit together, the elect exiles. These two words sit together because what they do is they describe for us the relationship of every believer. Our relationship to God, we are His elect. And our relationship to the world, we are exiles. These are the identity markers that we've inherited together with an ancient people group, a story that is still unfolding that will find its ultimate culmination in a new heavens and a new earth. But for now, and until then, we are the elect exiles. Let's consider each of these terms because they define so beautifully our relationship to God and our relationship to the world. Let's consider first exiles, our relationship to the world. How do we relate to this world? What is our position in this world? Well, clearly the word exile can also be translated aliens. We are God's aliens or we are God's foreigners or we are God's sojourners or we are God's strangers. In other words, this language is describing people who've come from one country and have moved to another country. Foreigners. In two, chapter 2, verse 11, Peter uses this language. He says, beloved. He, he, he uses the language of covenant, the beloved, the hesed people of God. Beloved people of God, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, what he's trying to highlight for us and for them is actually their minority standing in society. They, they do not hold a, a, a privileged position in society. In fact, what he's highlighting here is their fringe status in the eyes of the world. In, in terms of status, in terms of position in the world, he is identifying followers of Christ as marginalized. Marginalized. If you are a Christian, then you live in cultural exile. Cultural exile. You aren't the person that you used to be. That's what it means to be a Christian. We, we are being transformed. You've transformed 
your heart's been changed. And, and with that heart change comes a change of allegiance from allegiance to the world to allegiance to Christ. Now, to be clear, you haven't moved physically, but you have moved spiritually, right? Spiritually, we've changed. And for these first century readers who would have received this letter, what was happening across the Roman Empire at the time was widespread opposition, widespread persecution. The followers of Jesus were, were, were seen as a direct challenge to emperor worship. The followers of Jesus were seen as a direct challenge to the immorality of the society around them. The followers of Jesus were seen as a direct challenge to paganism and idolatry. And so they were persecuted, they were marginalized, they were exiled. They were in cultural exile. And, and what makes matters worse is that Peter is warning them. He's not only identifying who they are, but he's also warning them in this letter. Because if you study the letter of 1 Peter, you actually see that one of the major themes running through 1 Peter is a theme of suffering. That as Christians, we're going to face opposition and suffering. And part of the reason he's writing that is because Emperor Nero was about to take the throne. This was written around AD 60. And so we, we see in chapter 4, verse 12, Peter writes this. He says to the church, he says this to the elect exiles. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Peter was aware that, that under Nero's rule, under Roman rule, the church, the Christians, would not only be exiled, but they would be executed. And under the reign of Nero, there was an execution of Christians second to none. And so do you get the picture, church? The picture is this, that we are God's exiles. And in other words, we can expect opposition. We should expect opposition. We, we, should, we should realize that our position in society may be marginalized in the eyes of the world, but it's just where God wants us. And I'll show you why. This would have landed very difficult for Peter's first hearers. I and mean, think about it. It's gonna, he's basically saying to them, it's going to cost you to follow Jesus. And I think he knows about that, right? I think he knows firsthand. Peter is saying to the church, he's saying to us today, he's saying, the people who once were your friends, if you're going to be faithful to Christ, may no longer want to be your friends. If you're going to be faithful to Christ, there's going to be social and economic cost. It's going to cost you socially. It's going to cost you economically. Being a disciple of Jesus means that the world's agenda is going to increasingly be against you. That's what it means to be in cultural exile. But Peter is saying to you, although we are in exile, I want you to step forward. I don't want you to step back. I don't want you to retreat. I don't want you to hide. I want you to step forward. And then we've got to ask the question, Peter, how on earth, if we are marginalized, if we are despised, if we are not approved of in the world, how do we step forward? Where do we find the resources, Peter? And then Peter says to us, well, you're not just exiles. You are my elect exiles. You are my chosen people. And he reminds us 
that while we are marginalized and while we are oppressed people, while we are, 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 are a people who've been despised and rejected along with Jesus, he says, you are my chosen people. And to strengthen the exiles, he reminds them of their position in God. Your position in society is marginal, fringe, but your position in God's eyes is precious. The word elect is an interesting word. It's a simple word. The word elect simply means chosen. Chosen. You are my chosen people. You are my chosen exiles. It's not that we are exiled and God's forgotten about us. No, no, this is part of His plan. This is part of the design. You are my chosen exiles. You are my elect exiles. What, what Peter is describing here is the, the foundation of our salvation. The, the reason for our salvation is that we are God's elect. This is the behind-the-scenes reality of why we are Christians. The reason I'm a Christian is, is because God chose me, because God elected me. 1 John 4 says that we love Him because He first loved us. Now, I know some people struggle with this idea of election. Some people struggle with this concept of the elect. It's kind of like, well, you've wrestled with it, but you know it's there, uh, you know, kind of like eating vegetables. It's, it's not always pleasant, but we know it's good for us. And I just want to suggest that the main question when we think about the word elect or election, or if we think about our position before God, is not is it palatable or is it pleasant, but is it true? Is it true? Because if it's not true, then who cares? But if it is true, then it really matters. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, we talk about election because the Bible talks about election. If we desire to build our theology on the Bible, we run head on into this concept. We soon discover that man did not invent it. Again, we, we, we're seeing this under the, 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 the big banner of our identity. What is our identity? These identity markers are for our comfort. Because we're in exile, because we're going to be a persecuted people, because we're going to be a people who are marginalized by the world and society, he needs to galvanize our identity, and we need to know that we are these people. We are his covenant people. This is covenant language. This is tying us back again to the ancient story of God when he called his people out of Egypt. And we are the unfolding of the story. The new covenant people of God, Jew and Gentile together in one body, one church, one people. And so Peter, in chapter 2, verse 9, he grabs that ancient covenantal language and he lays it on this people in northern Turkey. He lays it on the Gentile church, and here's what he says to them. To reinforce this ideology that you are an elect exile, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race. That word there is the elect, chosen Notice it's one people, not chosen races. You're not chosen races. This is a new hum humanity. This is a, a new people. This is the new covenant people of God who have equal standing because of their faith in Christ. You are a chosen elect race, a new race, a new people group. 
You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, singular. All, all types and stripes, all nationalities, we are one holy nation, one new man in Christ, a people for his own possession. Elect exiles, this is who you are. Elect exiles, this is who God says you are. This, this doctrine is not just for our heads, it's for our hearts. It's to equip us for our exile. It's to equip us for faithfulness to Christ in the face of opposition. We, we may not have Nero, the emperor, but we've got others, don't we? We've got other movements, we've got other agendas, we've got other ideologies, we've got cultural pressures, and what are we going to do as the church? Are we going to cave? Are we going to give in? Are we going to blend in? Or are we going to hold our ground as God's elect exiles? This truth is used for the early church, and it's used for us today to strengthen our resolve that we Although we may be exiled, we are God's elect. And notice how wonderfully Trinitarian this verse is. He goes on, he says, You are my elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Affirming us, saving us, sanctifying us. Why? For obedience. For obedience in a hostile environment. For obedience to Jesus Christ. And so let me wrap it up by saying your identity and your significance, church, is not based on your standing in society. It's not based on your vocation or your position or your gifting, your identity is rooted in God, in your relationship to God. And no matter what you're facing, no matter where you live, whether it's in Pontus or Galatia, God has got His people. God is fulfilling His purposes. God is building His church. Whether it's in Pontus or Galatia, whether it's in Cape Town or Cairo, whether it's in London or L.A., you are God's elect exiles. God has his people everywhere. And you are there for a purpose. You are there for a purpose. You are there to stand out, not blend in. You are there to hold your ground. You are there to let your light shine as God's elect exiles. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be tricky. It's going to be tough ground, but we need to stay where God plants us. We need to flourish where God plants us because God knows what He's doing. The story He started will continue, and He will finish it. Peter ends this opening introduction in verse 2, and he says this, now may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Not just added, 
but multiply. Grace and peace. The grace of Christ and the peace from God the Father be multiplied to the elect exiles. When you abandon your identity, if, if you choose to abandon your identity as a Christian, if you have that moment where someone says, are, are you one of those? I, I, I recognize you. Or, Do you go to that church down the road? Or are you one of those common grounders? Or, or are you one of those followers of Christ? What are you going to do? What's going to be your response? Are you going to deny him? Or are you going to hold your ground? Are you one of those Christian bigots who, who believes in that old, ancient way of life? Whatever the accusation is, I want to say to you, when you hold your ground and you, you stand firm and you hold fast your position in Christ, I want to say that what's going to come to you in that moment is grace and peace. Grace and peace is going to be multiplied for you. And it might come with being marginalized. That's okay because I can be marginalized and I can still have grace and I can still have peace. And I can be rejected and I can have peace. And I can be stoned or whatever it might be. I can be persecuted and I can have grace and peace. Not just a little, but multiplied. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We really do pray that it would shape our hearts and our lives. Lord, we pray that we would be so freshly aware of our unique position our unique standing in relation to our Heavenly Father. We are His people, the elect, His personal possession, a unique people. But at the same time, in relation to the world, we are exiles. This world is not our home. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. And we thank You, Lord, that we don't have to be Peter and we don't have to be popular. We can be ourselves. We can be who you've called us to be. And we can be faithful to Christ, even in the midst of persecution. Because grace and peace will be multiplied for us. And so I pray for everyone here. I pray that you would strengthen our hearts with this knowledge, with this understanding, with this idea that we are your people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that multiplies to us grace and peace in our journey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Phil.